exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday. What a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I know I've taken a couple weeks away from doing a podcast, and most of that is actually centered around the war in Israel and what's been going on over there. I really, I got the sense that I would need to discuss and talk about what was happening over there. Um, And I wanted to take a few steps back and just kind of listen, watch, glean information, learn a little bit more. I have a topic today that's not necessarily centered actually around what's happening in Israel, but I did, I did want to take, take some time and just kind of understand what other believers that I trust were going to say about it. We're going to start talking about, to be honest with you guys, I've been quite surprised at some of the responses from Christians, some of the responses from even Messianic believers right now. Um, a lot of the responses from those who are very pro-Christian nationalism, um, very, you know, the, the people who believe, and I'm not one of these people, but the people who believe that, uh, you know, a lot of revelation has already taken place or almost all of it. And now Jesus is just waiting for Christians to go and take over all the nations and reform all of society. There's a large swath of believers that think that way. I don't. I believe that when the Bible says, um, come out of Babylon, come out of her, my people, God is not asking that we go reform every single government, that we won't be able to do that, actually. God is asking us to leave the system of the world, to get out of it, because the only way that the world gets reformed is when he returns. Now, that doesn't mean we don't fight you know, righteous battles. That doesn't mean that we don't um, stand for truth and justice. That doesn't mean we don't have an opinion about what's going on in our culture and society. That's not what any of that means. But the idea that we are somehow going to be able to, without Yeshua returning, we're going to be able to have all these governments that are running the way that God wants them to and that are being obedient to the Lord and all of that. This is just, I don't find this in the Bible. This is why Yeshua returns. And in fact, the Bema seat judgment is a national judgment, judgment over the nations, judgment over those who helped his people and those who did not help his people, those who did righteous acts as nations, those who did not. He separates them out. He judges them. You're not going to see all of those nations. You're not going to see all of the people come under righteous leadership. That just doesn't happen until Christ returns. And, and I don't see any evidence biblically otherwise. So you know, I, I did ask someone who maybe had some of these beliefs recently. I said, well, how do you deal with the thousand-year reign of Christ if somehow we're already in? Because part of these belief systems have us already in. You know, Jesus already did all of his work. He already fulfilled all of his prophecy. And, you know, we're somehow in this time period afterwards. And I said, well, how do you deal with the Bible and Revelation explicitly stating there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ? It will be a thousand years you know, this person didn't have a very good answer for that. Um, and that's because <laughs> there, if you if you don't understand the timeline and if you believe that everything has already been fulfilled already, 
I don't understand how you can possibly believe we are living in the reign of Christ. The world is still a disaster, and it has been way more than a thousand years since Christ was last here. It's been 2,000 years. And so um, you have to get rid of a lot of Bible verses. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to get to this. But um, nonetheless, my point being, uh, what Christians, what many Christians have started to say about Jews, about the people in the land of Israel, currently there's been this giant rise of critiquing of who's in the land right now. Now listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there isn't reasonable discussions around who are the people that are actually calling themselves Jews that are in the land. We can talk about that. We can talk about the historical aspect, the um, national identity, the racial identity of the people that are there right now. We can talk about the lineage of the what we call the Jewish people right now. That's usually fine. But I find it incredibly disturbing in the context of what's just happened to Israel, that you have innocent families, women and children brutalized and terrorized, and that this is the time that you are choosing to um, critique those people, that this is the moment of your choosing to decide that the people in the land really aren't Jews and we shouldn't be supportive of that nation. That this is your timing is very disturbing to me. I think it's wrong. Um, I also think, you know, gosh, have we forgotten that Paul states before the Lord, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Um, here's here's where I kind of land with this. Whether or not they're actually of the tribe of Judah doesn't change the fact that they are a people group that has been targeted, that we've seen in our lifetimes targeted time and time and time again for terrorist activities globally. We are seeing pro-Hamas, pro-terrorist organization rallies jumping up all over the world, many of them turning violent, many of them uh, doing horrific acts themselves to, um, especially to other Jewish people. There's a story today of a Jewish man who was beaten up and, uh, and abused at a uh, pro-Palestinian rally. When your rally, again, this is on the other side of the coin, when your rally starts because of terrorist activities that happen against the Jews, when you are pro the group that is the terrorist group, I'm sorry, but you are um, on the wrong side. Your timing is very wrong. We have wrong-headed timing happening right now with the way people are talking about the Jews in, in Israel. Um, you don't do this right after a massive terrorist attack. It reveals something about you that is very wicked and very evil. And so we can have lots of good intellectual conversations about the history of that land and the history of the peoples. But when you choose to be pro-Hamas and anti the Jews living in the land of Israel right now, right after they were brutally attacked, you reveal, you've revealed something about yourself. And it's, it's, a, it's a root of division that shouldn't be there. Uh, the truth is that God in the end says he brings his family back together, that he brings the two sticks, the Judah and Benjamin and the tribes of Israel. He brings them back into one hand. He wants his family back together as one. And that includes 
all of the nations who have come into the saving knowledge of Yeshua HaMashiach, all of the people that call him Lord and Savior and submit to him. They are all part of the 12 tribes. They are all part of the family that is being brought back together. And, you know, yes, we have brethren in the tribe of Judah or in Judah who call themselves Jews that are maybe not. Listen, we have a discussion in Revelation. Uh, is it in Revelation? I don't want to misspeak, but there's a Bible verse that says, um, I yes, it is in Revelation. It's a letter to the churches in Revelation where it basically says, I know that you know um, those who call themselves, right, the tribe of Judah, or call themselves Jews, but who are not, who are actually of the synagogue of Satan, right? We have liars and performers. We always have. In fact, the greatest liar and performer in the end times will be the false Messiah. We will see him rise. I believe that he will be very religious. I believe that he will know the Bible very well. He will be a man of peace and he will um, appeal to the sensibilities of many, many believers. Many people who call themselves believers, but who are not um, necessarily the elect. And when I say the elect, I mean the chosen. Um, there are certain people who are chosen to do particular works in the end times, right? And they're going to be particular. They're going to be chosen out as people like, just like the disciples were chosen, chosen out people who will know God in a particular way and who will be able to discern the times. But the false Messiah will be very, very good at lying and deceiving. Um, are you the one who is going to know the difference between a true Jew and, and a fake Jew? I mean, really, is that where we've, we've gotten to as Christians, that we're going to go around calling some people who believe that they are Jews, calling them that they're not? Uh, is that your job to do? One thing that I have concern about with believers right now is the amount of bad talking that's taking place about all sorts of people groups that we would sit in the seat of judgment instead of going to the Lord like Moses did. One of the most beautiful aspects of Moses and his example to us is Moses went to the Lord on behalf of the people when they were incredibly sinful, when they were falling away. Moses was an advocate asking for mercy. May we be that people, a people that would go to God asking for mercy for those who are falling away, who are being misled. Justice for the innocent, yes. Mercy for those who do not know, right? Mercy for the innocent. Mercy for us. We need mercy as a nation. You know, you want to go out and critique a nation? We need to be critiquing our own. Look at our involvement in all of these horrific wars globally. Look at how we have mishandled international relations. Look at what we have done with our money. If we should be critiquing anyone, it should be ourselves. Right now, what we should be doing is getting on our hands and knees and asking God for mercy and for wisdom and for help because we desperately need it. So if I were you and I myself have been trying to take this advice, be careful before you go out and decide to critique people's that may be innocent. Um, listen, one thing I, I know, I, I don't know everything about the Palestinian people. 
Um, I don't know, you know, how they feel about um, how all of them feel about Israel. I do know that the conflict there has been long. I do know that there's been terrorist activities that have happened before this. I do know that there is brainwashing and education that happens in a lot of Islamic communities globally about Jews and about Christians. And we know that in many Islamic countries, they're not just eradicating Jews, they are also eradicating Christians. They're committing genocide against Christians. We know that this has been happening in Azerbaijan with the Armenian Christians. We know that in Iran and many other places around the world, being a Christian will cost you your life. So we, you know, there's, what do you say, right? What can we say? The world has been like this for a very long time, and racism has existed for a very long time. Um, the history of that land, we could do, you know, historical podcast on this. Um, I'd be fine at looking at it if you guys are interested, but um, there is deep uh, distrust. There is deep, uh, there are deep feelings um, that I think have happened between the Palestinian people and, and they're not really a people. I hate to say Palestinian people. They're not a people. They don't have a history. Um, Palestine is just a name that Hadrian used and, and he used it actually to call Jews and Arabs, all sorts of people living over in the land. He called them Palestinians. He called it Palestine. It's from the word Philistine actually in the Bible. Um, the Palestinian people are a different, are a group of a mixed group of Arabs, um, they don't have a, a racial history. They don't have a landmass history. They probably, the group that's currently in the Gaza Strip, probably should be in Jordan, given the history that I've learned. Um, we already have a two-state solution in Israel. Everyone talks about two- or three-state solution. We've had that. We've tried that. That's not working, right, seemingly. Uh, we can look at that and say that's really not working. It's really not. doesn't make any sense. So we could talk about that history. Um, nonetheless, as believers, what I think we need to do is understand that the people of Israel have created an incredible economy. They have created incredible orchards and and farmland out of a dry desert that they were handed in the 1940s. It was a desolate place that had not produced anything in a while. And the people group that ended up there has made it into a one of the most productive societies on the planet. They are an ally and a friend of freedom. They are an ally and a friend of unbelievable freedom, right? Freedom, we, we, we would even almost say maybe it's too much freedom, but they are one of the only free places for women and children in the entirety of the Muslim world which surrounds them. And this is not the time to come out against that group of people. Your timing is wrong if you're doing this. You need to go back to the Lord and rethink how you are discussing the people that are currently in the land. All right, I want to get into today's topic. That was a very long introduction, by the way. Um, I hope it made sense to you. If you have questions, please come to me. Um, let's talk about them. And if you are interested in doing and having a podcast where we go through some of the history there, um, I've done a lot of research on it, and I'm happy to do more to get you that. All right. I wanted to talk about the adversary, actually. I did want to talk about the false messiah and the beast and the dragon and what gets listed in scripture. Um, and I want to talk about this concept of the sixth 
day. Now, I know in the past we've talked about chiastic structure in the Bible, that what happens at the beginning happens at the end, that if you look up an, at a menorah, you will see how chiastic structure operates. The menorah is one of God's most important symbols in scripture. You have the trees surrounding the menorah in prophecy. You have the two trees, the house of Israel and the house of um, Judah, and then you have the menorah. And so the menorah is a meaningful, really important symbol. If you do not understand the symbolism, I have podcasts on this more towards the beginning of when I started out this podcast, um, the number seven being very important in God's timeline, God's structure of things, how he lays things out, God's cyclical timeline, right? But chiastic structure, structure, we are told that out of the beginning, God prophesies the end. God tells you what the end will be out of the beginning. And so if you understand the garden and the garden of Eden, then you understand the end. And the things that happen in between have links. The things that happened right after the Garden of Eden will probably happen right before the end. This is why I believe the end times are called the days of Noah, basically. As in the days of Noah, so will these end times days be. And so if you study the days of Noah, you're going to understand the beast and what he is doing in the end before Messiah returns and restores to us that Garden of Eden status and our new bodies and, and a creation that is perfected. And so we can go and we can look at this chiastic structure of the Lord's, the seven-day system, the seven-candle system. We can kind of understand something about the sixth day, okay? So seven always um, relates to creation, the wholeness of creation. And so I've done discussions again on this where you can go back and listen to how the first day of creation relates to the first of the feasts and relates to all, you know, um, all the different times the first thing is mentioned in the Bible. Well, you can count that up to all the twos are the same. The threes are the same. The four, the Yeshua is the fourth candle. He is the center. He is the vine and we are the branches. He is the structure that holds all of it together. He is the creator who gave us the one through the seven. He's the center of all of it. Um, so all the fours uh, point to Yeshua and then the fourth day of creation. You know, you, you can look to all of these things and how they align Let's go to the sixth day, the sixth day of creation. Two things are created, man and beast. And um, I feel like, and I, I'm going to get into this. Let's go to Genesis 1, 24 through 28, just so we can read it. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man and beast, um, interestingly, they're made on the same day. And I really think that there's a concept here that God is telling you that mankind can become beast-like. You know, man is made in the image of God, but man can fall to the level of a beast, basically, in his behavior and his choices and his thinking. 
And um, we see this happen with mankind throughout Scripture. Okay, let's let's talk about this. Um, again, there's a chiastic structure of the Bible. So by the sixth chapter of Genesis, so right after the fall, something very corrupt happens to the seed of man. So if we go to Genesis 6, 1, it says this. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, end quote. Okay, so here we have in the days of Noah that something happened to the seed of mankind where they were mixed with fallen angels and they became these giants, these Nephilim, you could call them beasts. They became something that God did not create and souls that there was no location for. There's no hell or heaven. There's no place for these things. These were an abomination to the Lord. I believe today they are what we would call demons um, because they almost all of them died in the flood. But then it does say, and afterwards. So we know that some of these giants, these hybridized creatures, these hybridized humans, survived, you know, and I, I think we see them later in scripture as the giants that David encounters and that the people of Israel encounter when they're going into the land of Canaan. But they became beastly. It says that the, the thoughts of mankind during the days of Noah were all violence. This is beast-like, right? It was completely irrational, completely unreasonable. Everything was at the most base nature that you could possibly have. Sinful, sinful, sinful times. So towards the very end of the Bible, we have, you know, something very interesting happening, right? Where there's a mark of the beast that takes place on man. Um... So Revelation 13, there's a description of two beasts. The second beast is the one that causes all on the earth to receive this mark. So um, we read in uh, Revelation 13, verse 15, it says, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one could buy or sell. Excuse me. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Six, six, the number of a man has to do with the number six, so we can relate it back to that sixth day of creation. But we, we realize, we see here, People in the end are going to receive the number and the name of the beast. They're going to become like the beast. They're going to make this choice to be beast-like. And that number is the number six. Six, six, six. Now, perhaps six, 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 perhaps there's three digits in this number because there is a three unit enterprise happening. Just like, you know, we know that Satan's not very creative. He just 
thwarts and disturbs and distorts what God has already put in place. So we know we have the concept of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three entities we see in Scripture doing work that are all unified. Well, we see the same thing with the false messiah. We have the dragon and the beast and um, the false prophet, okay? So, um, well, uh, let me let me say this correctly. We have the false prophet, the dragon, and the beast. That's what I have written down. Um, and one of these entities is basically a false messiah, according to um, according to prophecy. So the beast will be a man right? The, 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 it is the number of a man, his number. So we know that there's going to be an entity in the end times that very much, very much probably like the Nephilim, there is some sort of bonding that takes place between Satan and this entity. There's some sort of DNA adjustment, or there's some sort of adjustment to the soul or the state of this person, and they become bonded to a fallen angel. And then whatever that particular DNA or structure is, I believe that that's what happens with the people that get the mark. And it's why those people in particular are singled out for a particular type of punishment that is reserved, you know, um, for the demons, for the fallen angels. I mean, it's a place that's reserved and it's a particular punishment that's reserved. Now, interestingly, we did a study on hell. It's not in hell. There is this place actually in God's kingdom, in his throne room, basically, where the incense is coming up from the burning of these people or these entities. And so we could discuss that all day long and there's theories abound around that. But um, it's interesting that the incense from that burning uh, exists in the presence of God himself. So you got to kind of get this idea out of your head that, you know, the Dante's Inferno version of hell, which isn't really ever delineated in scripture. But there, there is a very particular punishment for those that take this mark. They become something, I believe. They become beast-like. Right there in the very beginning in Genesis, should we be surprised that the prophecy is there, that mankind will either be in the image of God or they will be in the image of the beast. It's right there. I think it's really interesting, honestly. It fascinates me quite a bit. Um, that mark is going to reflect what they worship. So you take the mark and you have to worship the beast as well. And in that, you become like the beast. You become like your father, right? So if if we're supposed to become like Christ, if we're supposed to have the DNA of Yeshua so that we can be like the our father, our, our father in heaven, well, the beast system is just a perverted version of that, right? So the beast wants to make you, wants to make human beings like him in his image. And so these humans will become like their father, like what they worship and will be made into the image of the beast. In Genesis at the fall, 
we have this very interesting moment where God curses the serpent. And in the curse, he says this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. End quote. So at the very beginning, the deceiver receives this curse that makes him more lowly than the beasts. So, you know, God created the sixth day alongside mankind. Um, we are looking at uh, an entity, an adversary that is looking for a way to access. He looked for a way to access the position that mankind had been given. And yet he ends up like a beast or lower than a beast, right? So, um, in Ezekiel 39, there's this interesting prophecy um, at the very end of time when, you know, the, this great war has taken place. Gog is mentioned. Gog comes from the um, Semitic, uh, well, I, I want to get this right. I think it's so it's ancient kind of Babylonian um, language, Sumerian language, that is from the word Ug, I believe, which actually is the word for death. Okay, so you see King Og in scripture, that really is King Death. It's almost like Satan himself. Um, the same thing is Gog. Gog is like Satan, it's death itself. Okay, so in Ezekiel 39, Gog is given to the birds of prey and beasts of the field. Verse 3 says this, Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come gather from all around the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan, end quote. What are the beasts of Bashan? Well, if you have studied kind of that ancient culture, those are basically demon gods. The bulls of Bashan, they're, they're pagan gods, right? In the ancient worlds, these goats and these bulls were sacrificed to pagan gods, but the bulls of Bashan were actually demonic spiritual entities. Death, these evil entities, and whatever they have bonded with in human form, they are destroyed, and then the beasts are gathered to eat them. The animals are gathered to eat them. So they become just like what is prophesied by the Lord, in Genesis, Satan is lower. His hordes are lower than the beasts of the field. The beasts of the field are going to feast on these entities, okay, just as God promised in Genesis, which is so interesting. But I think that it's also interesting that when the adversary and when death and when these demons are mentioned in Scripture, there's this beast terminology that comes alongside of it. And again, we are, we are talking about that, the beast himself. And he is attempting to make human beings into his image and have dominion over creation and sit in the seat of God and be able to create something in his own image and have his own children, right? 
This is what he's attempted to do, attempting to do, and attempted to do in the days of Noah's, attempting to do in the end times. But they all are going to end up with the same judgment received in Genesis, that they will be lower than the beasts of the field. In fact, they're going to be devoured by them here uh, in the end. Daniel 11.37 says this, He shall pay no attention, and is talking about the false messiah. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, I know I wrote this down for a reason, so I'm going to get to it. But where I wanted to um, talk about this one beloved by women line, different translations have it differently. Um, and there are multiple options here for what that means for this false messiah. Number one, one option is it means the God that woman loved. So he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the God that was loved by women. In scripture, you see this this, this time period where women are weeping over Tammuz. Tammuz was an ancient God. You know, um, they, they, they have these women who are lamenting over Tammuz. And it's like an abomination to the Lord that they worship Tammuz, they love Tammuz, and they're weeping over Tammuz. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the cult of Tammuz centered around two yearly festivals, one celebrating his marriage to the goddess Inanna, the other lamenting his death at the hands of demons from the netherworld. During the third dynasty of Ur in the city of Uma, the marriage of the god was dramatically celebrated in February to March, Uma's month of the Festival of Tammuz. During the Isin Larsa period, the text that um, the texts relate that in the marriage rite, the king actually took on the identity of the god, and thus, by consummating the marriage with a priestess incarnating the goddess, magically fertilized and fecundated all of nature for the year. The celebrations in March to April that marked the death of the god also seem to have been dramatically performed. Many of the laments for the occasion have as a setting a procession out into the desert to the fold of the slain god. In Assyria, however, in the 7th century BCE, the ritual took place in June to July. In the major cities of the realm, a couch was set up for the god upon which he lay in state. His body appears to have been symbolized by an assemblage of vegetable matter, honey, and a variety of other foods. End quote. I bring that up because um, there, the, this, this god was worshipped quite a bit. This god actually um, has some similarities to the story of Yahshua, which should not surprise us at all. Of course, the enemy knows the Bible better than we do. He knew what God was going to do. I think that he implanted these false versions of the story of Christ throughout all these cultures to confuse um, and to make sure that we never really understood who Christ actually was. Um, you know, there's a lot uh, around the cult of Tammuz um, that could be related to Easter. We, we have all sorts of stuff going on in here. So, but anyways, uh, that Daniel 1137 uh, prophecy about the false Messiah could just mean that it's the God like Tammuz, one of the gods that were loved by women. There's a second interpretation. Um, that interpretation could mean that the false messiah has no love for women. Now, Revelation 17 describes this really fascinating thing that happens with the woman and prostitute. Now, 
I believe that the enemy has no, you know, has a disdain for women for a lot of reasons. Number one, we see that he goes after the woman in the garden. He knew that if he could take her down, then he could take down all of the rest, right, along with him, that she was the ultimate end to creation. She's the point of the spear. She needed to be taken down. She would bring Adam along with her because Adam loved her. And... I also believe that the adversary hates the the image of women because he hates the bride. He hates the bride of Christ because the bride is the one that's going to sit on the throne. He hates anything that reminds him that the status he wanted is being given to her instead. And we see that status given to her in Revelation. Um, so I think the adversary does have a true disdain for women, but you see this play out even with the version of the female that he sets up, his version of the female, right, which is the great, this this horrible, um, this Babylon that sits upon many waters, this Babylon that rides the beast in the Revelation vision. She um, gets destroyed. And let's go there. Revelation 17 describes this. Verse 15 says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God hath put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay. So even then in the end, you're going to see that even the prostitute, even the one that the enemy uses to bring people into his system, the lusts of the flesh and the, the material goods that can be provided and the riches and the wealth and, and the sexuality, the sensuality of the earth, that even that gets destroyed. He can't stand it. The beast desperately wants to reveal himself so that you realize that you're not worshiping the woman you're worshiping him. And and the woman is, is the setup, right? She's the lure. She's what kind of brings people into his system and kind of keeps them there. But eventually it will just be this nakedness before this great um, evil, right, that's been taking place. So, you know, think if you think about who Satan goes after in the garden, if you think about the bride of Christ, the one who God does all these things to recover and to bring to glory in the end, that very glory that Satan wanted before he fell. This is Revelation 3, starting in verse 20, says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. End quote. You know, the adversary desired that throne, yet Yeshua, Yahshua, is going to give this to the bride. He's going to allow the bride to sit on the throne. There's a true hatred, I think, that the adversary has for anything that reminds him of the bride. And since we know that the adversary just perverts what God has created, you know, he uses the woman as well. He has his own bride, but he hates her. And he has no ability to share glory, right? So, um... I believe also this bride of his might be false religions. I think the Roman Catholic Church is very much part of some of these 
the bride of Satan, you know, the woman riding the beast. I think that um, you think about the wealth, you think about the messed up doctrines, you think about the lure, um, you know, it's all there in, in the teachings of Roman Catholicism. Uh, it's also those who become popular and famous and filled with money and power and who have global connections and control. Uh, the adversary's woman is likely very religious, but she leads people into fornications with false gods and false god worship. Hence the description of the woman that rides the beast in Revelation. Uh, this woman is also a picture, I think, of the ancient goddess of Ishtar. So, so the ancient Sumerian goddess who was worshipped and mentioned throughout scripture, she's listed as the queen of heaven in scripture. And, she, and it's listed that they make leavened cakes they bake leavened cakes to her, which is an abomination to the Lord. Today, you'll notice that at the time of Easter, Ishtar, uh, hot cross buns, leavened cakes are popular across the world. They are a tradition. It's interesting. Those traditions never seem to change, right? And yes, there's debate around this. Oh, it's, you know, Easter and Ishtar. Easter just means spring, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, you can talk about the terminology or you can talk about the traditions around eggs and and leavened bread instead of unleavened bread, which is what the Passover and the Feast of First Fruits is about, right? It's about unleavened bread, and yet the 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 cakes made to the Queen of Easter, Queen of Ishtar, are leavened. I mean, come on, come on! You got to look at how old these traditions are. You will find the verses in the Bible itself. Okay, Ishtar is um, pictured actually in ancient Babylonian times. She is pictured as writing the god, uh, the beast, um, that is a veil for the god Enlil, the adversary himself. You will find those images in the um, in ancient Babylonian uh, archaeological uh, discoveries. So that very picture that John saw is actually something that existed. It's an image that existed um, in a particular time period on the earth with a particular group of people that worshipped these pagan gods. And um, we have the Ishtar Gate. You, you know, you can go look that up and kind of understand um, there was the worship, this worship of this god, this goddess. And I do believe that she is involved. It's why when I say the Roman Catholic Church, well, when you look at Easter and Ishtar and leavened cakes and eggs and fertility rites and um, all of those things, it very much has a relationship, right, to how the Roman Catholic Church changed the Lord's days and times, adjusted people to take on these pagan holidays and celebrations. And the lure of those celebrations is really heavy on people, right? Even non-believers celebrate Easter. They get their bunnies, they get their chocolate, they get their, they color their eggs. This lore has been out there and very successful with humans for thousands and thousands of years. So she is very seductive, very seductive. Here's the big point of all of this, you guys. That sixth, sixth day, I really believe that we have to see the beast appear. We have to see these things come to place, come to happen in the sixth millennium because it's all related to that day and it's related to the terminology of a beast. Um, I believe this also because the Bible tells us that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And we are told in Revelation that Yeshua will come back and reign for the final thousand years, the seventh millennium, that seventh day of rest that Hebrews talks about. Uh, because Yahweh set his timeline in sevens, according to the creation story, 
That future day of rest is when Yeshua reigns on the earth, but that sixth day is when the beast happens, okay? So the beast has to appear on this day, in my opinion. This is my opinion. You can take it or leave it based on some of the things I've shared today, based on the scripture that you go and find where the beast is mentioned and where beasts are mentioned and the creation story and all of that. Please take this into your own heart. Go do your own research. But to me, it just means that we have to see this beast appear, this false messiah and the prophet and the and the, um, the dragon and all these things appear sometime in the sixth day or the sixth millennium. Okay, the sixth day, feast day, listed as the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 23. This is a day to afflict yourself, a day to reflect and ask forgiveness. It is a day kind of a, of a, dar a darkness, right? Where we're not supposed to necessarily be sad. We know that Yeshua is freeing people on this Day of Atonement. But this day is the day where you recognize what his blood had to do on our behalf, what it had to cover on our behalf. And this height of sin and darkness that's going to happen on the earth in the sixth day, you know, we have this evidence of this need for repentance. It's going to, there's going to be a great call to repentance before the return of Yeshua. The day of the atonement has all of that in it, just, you know, wrapped up in it. So just as in the sixth day, the beast will come and those who stand firm and allow affliction and difficulty for the sake of Yahshua will find favor with the Lord. Those who proclaim Yah's name before the world will be thought of in the heavens. The sixth observance is dark and yet it is essential. It's atonement, it's covering, it's Yah rescuing his own, and it's reflective. The fullness of rebellion of mankind will be before us in the sixth millennium. It's a time of complete wickedness, as in the days of Noah, but for the one who endures, they will sit on the throne with Messiah. So I know I've talked about the seventh day quite a bit in my podcast, but I had yet to really dig in about the sixth day and, and this number of man and this number of the beast. You guys, it is really important that we start to understand end times and that we are careful in our words, we're careful to understand the difference between opinions and facts, but that we're open to lots of different versions of how this plays out because the truth is many are going to be deceived and many will take a mark that will make them like the beast. And we don't want to be those people. We want to understand what it is that we're doing. We want to understand the ways of God. Let me encourage you, if, the, if this has made any sense to you at all and you're a believer, number one, you have the covering of your Messiah. Amen and amen. Number two, if you would like to understand how to follow him and be obedient, you need to dig into Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you need to really dig into it. You need to understand it front to back, top to bottom. In it, hold the keys to the kingdom. I really believe it's the keys to unlock how scripture operates and to understand what's being spoken of in books like Revelation and Daniel. And you need to be willing to submit your life totally to him so that you're not called a lawless one as he he does in Matthew as he says that many will come to him and say they did miracles in his name but he's going to say I don't know you you workers of lawlessness those who get rid of the laws of God and teach against the laws of God unfortunately oftentimes are promoters and workers of lawlessness and do not know the Messiah very well and so we don't want to be among those people. We want to know him and know him well. We want to understand how his kingdom will operate so that if we get to sit on the throne with him, if we get to be part of the bride, then that means we understand how his kingdom operates 
and we're good. We're, we're, we're filled with both mercy and justice. We have the eyes of our, of our groom, the eyes of Yeshua. We have his heart within us and we understand how to discern. And these things are really, I believe, quite important for the end times believers. So especially when you read the letters to the seven churches, you have this kind of discernment. You have this looking for those who are discerning and wise, those who have not abandoned their first love, who love the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength, and who do the will of God because of their great love for him. And um, it is the people who will make it through the end, the people who will be his bride are those who have the testimony of Yeshua and who keep his commands. That's what the Bible says. Those who keep his commands and have his testimony. There are those who keep his commands that do not believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, right? And we need to pray that those people come into the saving knowledge of, of Messiah. And we know that there are those who profess the Messiah, but who do not keep his commands. And we need to pray that those people come into obedience and repentance before the Lord so that their righteousness can shine out, so they can be salt and light. Um, but those who have both, those are the ones who make it to the end. And those are the ones who God calls his bride. So we want to be in that group. So get to know his laws and his ways. And I promise you will be blessed. You will be freed. Um, and you will, you will come out of it with more joy than you ever thought possible if you haven't done that already. I hope this has been interesting for you. It was interesting for me as it started coming to me and I started looking up these Bible verses and putting these ideas together. I, I was truly fascinated by what I was finding. And I hope it will help us once again clue in, teach our children to clue in the difference between the false Messiah and our Messiah. Remember when Messiah comes, it will be like lightning from the east to the west. It will be obvious to all that he has appeared and he has come and he is going to reign. That has not happened. I hate to, for those of you that believe all this already happened. I'm sorry, that didn't happen. There wasn't a moment where Yeshua returned again and it was obvious to everyone on the planet that he had come down. He did not come yet as Messiah ben David. He came first as Messiah ben Yosef, right? The suffering servant, the Messiah son of Joseph. He will return as Messiah ben David, the conquering king. There's only one who gets to be both king and priest, and it is Yeshua HaMashiach, right? He came and he became our high priest on our behalf, our atonement, the constant sacrifice before the Lord and the high priest in the Holy of Holies. He will return as the king. He gets to be both priest and king. If we have not seen Yeshua as king of the earth yet, then not all has been accomplished. This is scriptural. He will return. But we have to know what his return looks like versus the false Messiah who will be very good at deceiving the earth. So you must know the character and the voice of your shepherd, my friends. All right. Many blessings to you. Please reach out if you need prayer. I know many of you do. I know many of you are probably going through challenging times right now. May you be blessed and may, may our Heavenly Father's face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and lift up his countenance to, towards you. May you have his shalom. Till next time.